people throw out this notion that we just need to do away with animal husbandry and then the planet will be saved, it sounds awesome. It just may not be true. If kids don't get adequate iron, zinc, B vitamins, a child will never develop the way that he or she could have. In any row crop centric model, the only thing you can do is eradicate the life that's trying to eat those row crops. A regenerative food system that includes animals may be the only thing that could still be here a thousand years from now. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Friends, can you believe this episode is happening? I can't. I'm just, I'm so excited. That's all I have to say. That's all I have to say, with the exception of the following two hours. This has been one of the most surreal moments for me, and I am just so grateful. And everything I say in the show about how just life-changing Sacred Cow is comes from the bottom of my heart. Honestly, before reading it, I did not understand at all the intricacies, the workings of our modern food system, what is actually sustainable for the planet. My mind was blown. I think everybody should read this book. It's that profound. And I really think you'll enjoy today's conversation with Rob Wolf. Oh my goodness. Okay. <laughs> the show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash sacred cow. Those show notes will have a complete transcript. So definitely check that out. There will also be an episode giveaway for this episode. For that, just join my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you from this episode. And there's a lot of potential stuff there on the pinned post at the top of the group under announcements to enter to win something I love. And you can also follow me on Instagram. That's at Melanie Avalon. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. So I am actually going to start today's episode with a little story. You guys know me well, you know my passions, you know the things I love. And honestly, that really all started because I first changed my diet about 10 years ago. I went low carb, I started doing intermittent fasting, and that's when I realized the profound effects of what you put in your mouth, how it affects your body. But the final piece in that puzzle was in 2012, I believe, I read a book called The Paleo Solution, and it changed my life. Because <laughs> up until that time, I was doing low carb, I was doing intermittent fasting, and I thought I was doing all the things. I was like, what difference can actually cleaning up you know, what I eat beyond that make? And it had such a profound effect on my life. Oh, I start crying. Oh, goodness. Okay. Um, that it just, it stuck with me. It was an amazing work. I actually don't own the book anymore because I obviously like lent it out to somebody and never got it back. But it was just really, really profound, really incredible. It was written by a man named Rob Wolf. You guys probably know who Rob Wolf is. He is here with me today. I am just sort of in shock, so honored. Rob, thank you so much for being here. I didn't know that backstory. I am so honored to be here. Yeah, I remember, I think I tweeted you probably once in like 2014. You tweeted back and I had insomnia for like three days. So I definitely had insomnia last night. 
I have that effect on my wife too, but mainly from annoying her incessantly. So hopefully it was a different, different causal deal for you. No, it was, it was a good one. I was like, must implement all the biohacking things to fall asleep. But in any case, we could have completely 100% had an episode on that book, which was a New York Times bestseller. But since then, you've also released Wired to Eat, also a New York Times bestseller. I really, really loved that book as well. That was really revolutionary and realizing how we all respond differently to different foods and, you know, a sweet potato might be great for one person and then knock out another person. And really, I really recommend it. I'll put links to all these in the show notes. But now we have a new book on the horizon. Well, now it's out. That is Sacred Cow, The Case for Better Meat, Why Well-Raised Meat is Good for You and Good for the Planet. Friends, okay, I just talked about how life-changing Paleo Solution was. This book, equally life-changing. There's so much going on right now with viewpoints regarding eating meat, eating plants. We got veganism. We have carnivore on the nutritional side of things. Beyond that, there's all of this debate and conversation and emotion and drama surrounding things like climate change, things like sustainability, the future of our planet. And it's such an important conversation to have. And the problem with it, in my opinion, is it's so emotional and we often don't actually look at the facts and what is sustainable, what is regenerative. And friends, after I read Sacred Cow, I want everybody to read this book because it dives deep, deep, deep into the issue. It's not cherry picked. You guys know me. That's Rob, by the way, one of the reasons I think you're my hero in this whole world is I I never get a sense that you cherry pick information, which is just my pet peeve in life. But Sacred Cow, it's not cherry picked. It really dives deep into how having livestock in the farming system affects our health and affects the environment. It also goes into the ethical issues. So much we can talk about to let you know the book already has, you know, over 100 reviews on Amazon. And you know, a book is a good book on Amazon when it has like, you know, 100 plus reviews. And then you go to top reviews and it's like, see the critical review. You have one critical review. So I'm really excited to dive deep into all the topics today. I'm super excited to be here. Thank you. So to start things off, my listeners are probably very, very familiar with your work. I will let you know for anybody who's not familiar. So I did just mention Rob is a two-time New York Times oh, and Wall Street Journal bestselling author. He's also a former research biochemist. He's functioned as a review editor for the Journal of Nutrition and Metabolism. He's been a consultant for the Naval Special Warfare Resiliency Program. He's on the board of director and advisors for specialty health, the Chickasaw Nation's Unconquered Life Initiative, and numerous other innovative startups. So like I said, my listeners are probably pretty familiar, but would you like to tell them a little bit about your backstory and actually what brought you to, well, first paleo and now ultimately your focus right now on sustainability and the environment and how everything relates to that? Sure. Yeah. It's a a pretty long, somewhat convoluted story. I had a significant health crisis about 22 years ago and was suffering from ulcerative colitis so badly that I was facing a surgery and I was contemplating medical school at the time. So I had a pretty 
good idea of where ulcerative colitis goes with conventional treatment. And it's no place pleasant. And but shoot, I was 26 at that time. So pretty young, not and pretty broken. I, I usually run around about 170, 175 pounds, pretty, pretty lean, reasonably muscular. And at the low ebb of my ulcerative colitis, I was 130 pounds from malabsorption issues. And at that time, I was eating a vegan diet. I was living in Seattle, which means no sun. And so like when I when I look back now, I just had like the perfect storm if I were to write a prescription for how to break myself, like dual graduate programs, you know, not eating in a way that was consistent with my physiology, really terrible circadian biology, no circadian entrainment. I was I was living in a basement apartment with one window that was about eight feet away from the house <laughs> next to me. So, I mean, there was no ambient light or anything. I bet my vitamin D levels were probably like 12 or something like that. Like I was just an absolute mess. So I I don't want to hang everything on the the dietary approach that I had, but but all things considered, that that very grain and legume centric vegan diet did not work for me, particularly under all of those circumstances. And so it was that that health crisis that led me to investigate what was going on with me. And it, I, I guess an ironic feature of this is that what was happening to me was very similar to the health issues that my mother had experienced throughout her whole life. She had had her gallbladder removed. She had all these GI related issues. She had what, what we were soon to discover was a kind of interrelated complex of autoimmune diseases. But her rheumatologist did some blood work on her and he said, hey, you are intolerant to grains, legumes and dairy. And when my mom shared this with me because I was vegan at the time, I was kind of like, OK, the dairy makes sense. But grains and legumes, what on earth do you eat if you, if you don't eat that? You know, and this was in 1998. And I, I was just kind of sitting on my back porch thinking about this after I had talked to my mom and this idea popped into my head kind of free associating. I'm like, okay, grains and legumes, that's agriculture. What came before agriculture? And this idea of a, the Paleolithic or Paleolithic diet, hunter-gatherer kind of popped into my head. And, and again, mind you, this was 1998. So I went in the house, turned on my computer, waited for it to boot up. Then I turned on the dial up and got, it, got online eventually. And there was this newfangled search engine called Google. And into Google, I put the term Paleolithic diet. And I found some work by Lauren Cordain and Arthur Devaney. I ended up doing research with both of these folks. And, you know, it's it's interesting. I, I guess I was pretty well known for the, the paleo diet angle, you know, at, at least initially in my career. But the first book really is a low carb angle on paleo. Like I, I made the recommendation of staying below 50 grams of carbs a day, at least for the, the first 30 day reset. But the the impact that that dietary and overall lifestyle change had on me. Like I became aware of vitamin D and not just vitamin D that we can get from a supplement, but vitamin D as nature largely intended, which is getting sunlight on our skin and the whole secosteroid cascade that leads into vitamin D production and nitric oxide release and all this other, you know, good stuff. I developed what, what eventually became I think generally termed like the ancestral health template or an evolutionary biology template. So really trying to use this ancestral model to inform as much of, of my living as I can. I don't try to do 
historical reenactment. I'm, I'm not excited to go live under a bush or, or anything like that. But, you know, when some challenges emerge with regards to health and, and even like mental health issues and stuff like that, I, I think it's very powerful to, to at least ask some questions that have the, the kind of ancestral health orientation, knock on wood, but, you know, between the, the book and, and podcasts and whatnot, like there've been a, a several tens of millions of people that have been exposed to this idea and seem seem to have really remarkably benefited. Like I, I would make the case that the powerful interest in the gut microbiome is really an outgrowth of of kind of interest that was initially brought to bear on gut health from the kind of paleo diet research. So there's a lot of things that have spun out of that initial kind of kind of paleo diet template that are, are still with us today. Intermittent fasting really, really came on strong as a, a consequence of, of some of the early paleo diet research. So it, it was definitely a very valuable starting point. Yeah, it's so incredible. And actually, this is a question I have for you. Where do you currently stand on everything and the whole quote, paleo and food world. Because I know for me, like when I first read your book and started paleo, I was like, I was like, it's all paleo. It's all food, like all health issues. It's all food. Like it all can be fixed by what I put in my mouth. But since then, I feel like my my perspective on everything has become slightly more nuanced. And I still think that food is like the main driving factor in our health, but there does seem to be so many other factors involved. Like, I mean, mindset, epigenetics, environment, you touched on the gut microbiome, which arguably, you know, will be affected by our food. But I know just from listening to, you know, your podcast and hearing about your journey through the years that I feel like you and I are similar in that a paleotype template works really well. But ever since I had that initial gut issue problem in 2014, it's like never have been able to really get back to, you know, 100%. And I I struggle every day with this idea where I'm like, you know, I'm eating the foods. (laughs) So why am I still having, you know, problems? So I was just wondering, like, what are your thoughts currently? Have they evolved much since then? You know, like, the role of, like I said, the microbiome, macros, like how much can we do with our health by our food choices? Man, it's, it's a really good question. And I, I, it's a way better question than my answer is going to do it justice. But I'll, I'll, I'll take a couple of stabs at it. I had a similar deal. Like in looking back, I also realized that this ulcerative colitis came on the heels of being exposed to Giardia while traveling abroad. And I managed to kind of clear that up with the the standard, you know, antibiotic treatment, but I was never really 100% right after that. And I, and I think that that heightened my food sensitivities, like things like gluten and, and even dairy were, were remarkably problematic for me. But I noticed something weird whenever I would travel and I would get somewhere kind of equatorial, sunny, warm, hot, humid, my digestion improved and like my overall like sense of well-being improved. And and for over 10 years, I lived in a very sunny place, Reno, Nevada, but uh, it, it gets cold at periods of the, the year. It, it's high desert. And so there's definitely times where it's quite chilly and you're not going to spend a ton of time outside. But I thought it was a pretty sunny environment. But whenever we would get somewhere like Hawaii or Mexico or, or something like that, like my, my digestion improved. I always have tended to be 
in that that kind of IBS spectrum, this gets into the TMI stuff pretty quickly, but I've always been on the looser side, like it just, you know, just always tended that way. And then we moved to New Brunfels, Texas a year ago, and my digestion just got amazing. Like it got so much better and it was better for about six weeks. And then I got food poisoning here and it, it took me down for about three months. Like the only thing I could consume was animal based products. Like I was basically carnivore for, for three months straight and then slowly reintroduce some things. And what I've discovered is things like green salads are not my friend. Huge stir fries are not my friend. Like I can do some tomatoes, some avocados, some asparagus. But the for me, I know for a fact that getting daily sun and some heat is really a it, it's 20%, 25% of my overall kind of health index and like happiness index. So that's been a major, major piece. And then I also started a meditation practice. It's Emily Fletcher's Stress Less, Accomplish More, twice a day, 15-minute meditation. Very, very simple. And that was a major improvement in my sleep and in my health. So, you know, there were these peripheral things like introducing some dedicated meditation and then also just living in an environment where I can easily get sun and, and water, like there's water everywhere around me. We, we both have a pool and there are, are rivers around here that you can swim in all year round. And I got to say, like, that's just been a shocking improvement for my health and digestion. But I've also kind of narrowed things down that I mainly eat the stuff that I do well with. And I eat more or less a ketogenic diet. But I'll, I'll, I'll cycle some fruit, but, uh, particularly based around my, my Brazilian jiu-jitsu practice. And it's kind of funny. I do better with more tropical fruit type things like papaya, mangoes, melons, some berries. I don't do particularly well with like apples and pears. What about pineapple? Pineapple I do okay with, but I'll get a mouth sore if I go too crazy on it. So I have to I have to meter that out. But as just kind of a, you know, a standalone dose, I do okay. It's funny, both of my daughters love pineapple and both of them will get a skin rash if we just like cut up a pineapple and let them go to town on it the way that they would a watermelon. Both of them will end up with a, a skin rash by the end of the day. So like all of us, except my wife, who is Italian and apparently particularly hard to kill, you, you know, we... We have to meter out the pineapple. But I, I guess kind of the long and, and short is that I've continued to just kind of pay attention to what seems to work well with me on the, the food side. And then I've definitely had some some lifestyle changes getting out in the sun every day. Like I will sacrifice bathing in in lieu of getting out outside. Like right before we recorded, I uh, sat down outside. I turned on my my D-Minder app to track how much vitamin D in theory I'm making sitting out in the backyard. And then I jumped in the, the pool really quick, toweled off, ran in here. And I mean, it that has been a huge change for us. And it, it's interesting, like if for financial reasons or family reasons, we had a compelling case to move to like Idaho or Montana now, I would have to really think hard about that. Uh, you know, I don't know if like maybe I would need to buy a tanning booth and have it in my house or something so that I could I could get that same UV exposure. But that has been such a profound improvement in my health. Plus, just really paying attention to what do I do well with and what do I not do well with on the food side and really whittling that down. That's paid huge dividends for me. What was that vitamin D app? I wasn't familiar with that. 
it's called D-Minder, and it's it's pretty slick. It will ask you what your like skin type is, like are you a ginger and like you're basically a vampire and you're going to burst into flame with any direct sunlight and it will adjust for that or if you're darker darker skinned it will kind of adjust and then it takes into account your location so both your latitude and longitude and your elevation and then based off that it, it's able to pretty accurately calculate what your you know your local ultraviolet light exposure environment is at any given time and then it it kind of overlays that with your your predilection for burning versus tanning and it's been interesting because most of my sessions are about 15 to 20 minutes on on each side and that's it. And I have a very mild tan, but I, I usually actually get darker during the summer than what I am right now. But I'm really trying to to stick to just that, you know, just the maximum therapeutic dose. And it's it's interesting because I think it's kind of a a fascinating Something in the kind of biohacking world that I think that folks don't often appreciate or give enough airtime to is what is the the cost benefit analysis of any given thing? We always talk about kind of optimizing or trying to max one thing out, but in biology, everything's a trade off. And, you know, getting good sun is fantastic. Turning yourself into a leather handbag is maybe not fantastic. And so I, I think that there's kind of a a trade-off on that. And so when I when I say I'm getting sun, it's more the consistency than it is the, you know, absolute magnitude of exposure. And that D-Minder app really helps me to kind of stay on on point with that. That is so cool. For listeners, the show notes will be at melanieavalon.com slash sacred cow. I'll put a link in the show notes to that app. I was not familiar with it. Actually to the vitamin D point. So sort of the opposite of you. I'm currently in Atlanta. I sort of want to move to like Alaska or Colorado. I really like the cold. There's like heat shock proteins from sauna. There's cold exposure. There's all these different things. I feel like my body just like responds so well to cold exposure. Like I just feel so healthy. But I was thinking if I do that, I'm going to have to get like a tanning bed or something because that would just not, not pan out. I honestly think the ideal would almost be like Machu Picchu or something where you're high altitude, cold, but also low latitude. So you're getting lots of UV and you could get both the, the kind of cold, cold exposure and the ultraviolet radiation, you know, pretty much at your at your leisure. Yeah. I'm going to add that to the list of potential places. Actually, to that point, this is a sort of random question, but I noticed for the longest time, well, I lived in California for about 10 years, so got a lot more vitamin D there. But for a long time, I was eating a very high fish, high pineapple diet. Pineapple was great because I ate so high protein that I found it digested really well. I've done periods of like super low carb, especially when I was first doing paleo and low carb. But then I found when I switched to actually really high protein, really high carb from fruit, and actually pretty low fat, like the only fat was from the lean animal protein. I really thrived on that. I stopped eating fish a little bit though, because I got mercury toxicity. Looking back though, I realized there's actually seems to be substantial vitamin D in some fish species. And I've realized I'm on the fence now about like vitamin D supplementation because I've found that if I supplement it high dose, I will feel like really good. Like I, I feel like it makes a really big difference. But then I've done all this research on, you know, supplementation. It's kind of like we were talking about like cost benefit. 
is taking in, you know, supplemental forms of vitamin D or supplemental forms of vitamins, you know, how is that affecting the body? And is that actually maybe down-regulating our body's natural production of, you know, or natural tendency to have regulated amounts of these things? And I think this actually really ties in really well to the whole vegan carnivore debate, things like that, like getting nutrients from food versus supplements. So that was kind of a all over the place question. But I guess, yeah, question from that. So eating plants versus eating animals, the nutrients that we can get from that. Because a lot of people will say that a lot of vegans and vegetarians will make the case that we can get all of the nutrients we need from plants. You know, maybe some supplementation is required. But for people who say they want to do that, they want to get all their nutrition from plants, they think they can can we just eat plants and supplement and can we be healthy? Is that possible? So it is a, a lot to unpack there. If you live in a, a modern Western world where you've got a CVS or, or a Whole Foods where you can go get your enzymated, you know, B vitamins, bioavailable zinc and iron source, your algae derived DHA, I think you can do a, a pretty fair run doing a, a vegan diet as always. From my perspective, the, the uh, nutrient density challenge becomes a little bit of a, a thing, getting adequate protein, which this is a, it's fascinating. The, the vegan world has an interesting Venn diagram overlap with some of the really kind of extremely high fat, low protein keto world in that they're terrified of mTOR and the effects of mTOR on aging and cancer potential and, and whatnot. And I think that both of those camps are eating protein intake levels that will be horrific for effective aging. When we look at older populations and the way that they, they do or do not effectively age, the folks that eat more protein consistently do better on muscle mass, bone mineral density. I mean, it, it's just so crystal clear when we when we look at aged. And it, it's kind of interesting that the vast majority of people that kind of kick the tires on any of these more extreme dietary approaches, they're reasonably young. And so we've, we've got kind of a, a buffer, you know, with youth and, and ostensibly if we've been otherwise eating reasonably well, like you've got some some pool of resources to to deal with. I don't know if this is is performing kind of a logical fallacy or like stacking the deck in my favor, like you said, that I didn't cherry pick things. So hopefully this isn't cherry picking stuff. But I really like to look at, at, you know, what nutrition can be amenable for both the beginning and near the end of the life cycle, you know, as, as when we are in these more fragile states. And it's also pretty clear that pregnant or breastfeeding moms have a heck of a time having adequate nutrients on board to sustain, you know, both themselves and their, their developing fetus. And then ultimately their babies throughout Europe, it is considered child abuse to feed a child or an infant an exclusively vegan diet. The United States, interestingly, like the American Council of, of Dietetics, they have historically on their website said that a vegan diet is appropriate for all stages of the life cycle. But they've recently amended that, interestingly, even though I kind of feel like the, the like hammering of the vegan message has, has been very stout. But there's been some remarkable pushback within the scientific community. And also, we're starting to see the beginning edge of kind of a 
what I think may end up being kind of a public health tsunami of people that have been experimenting with vegan or, or peri-vegan diets and raising their kids. And there's some pretty terrible outcomes emerging. If kids don't get adequate iron, zinc, B vitamins, any one or all of those can impede neurological development. And this is a permanent feature. The child will never develop the way that he or she could have inadequate EPA and DHA, which you can only get from animal sources or from a fairly, you know, complex process of extracting it from algae. It, that is 90% of what our brain is made up of is these, these long chain omega fats. So I, I, you know, it can be done, but this is also one of the, the points that we really pushed back on in sacred cow around this topic of feeding people. There are tens of millions of people around the world, hundreds of millions of people around the world that don't have the privilege to push away the most nutrient dense food that's available. And, and that is meat and or animal products. And it's ironic that the same deficiency features that we see around vegan and vegetarian diets. And again, that we detailed this stuff in the in the book and cited the literature where it, it's just really easy to establish that, that vegan and vegetarian diets disproportionately lend themselves to nutrient deficient status and consequent health problems. So like that, that's all inline citation and folks are more than welcome to go pick that apart and see if, if we got that wrong. But it's ironic that when you look at the nutrient deficiencies of folks that are in developing countries that have massive food insecurity are typically trapped in, in a cycle of only a few kind of starchy agricultural products as the bulk of their calories, they suffer from exactly the same type of nutrient deficiencies. Low vitamin A, low vitamin D, vitamin K2 is, is almost non-existent, you know, zinc, iron, and long-chain essential fat, fatty acid deficiencies to say nothing of just kind of general protein malnutrition. So, I do think that people can navigate a vegan diet in a, a Western developed world to, to some degree. I think that you really have to put some thought into things like food intolerances. And, and there's this concept in, in evolutionary biology called the protein leverage hypothesis that puts forward the case that all organisms eat to a protein minimum. And this is true whether you're talking about a carnivore, an omnivore, an herbivore, like if, if you release cows into a fresh pasture and there's awesome looking green grass and there's awesome looking clover, they will make a beeline to the clover because the clover is high, much higher in protein and it's far more nutrient dense and they can actually overdo that. It, it can be a problem for them. So they need to strike a balance with that. But it, it's, it's interesting that if you look at this protein leverage hypothesis concept, when organisms eat to that protein minimum, because protein in all foods is disproportionately associated with nutrition, with nutrient density, if you just get enough protein, then you tend to, by extension, get enough nutrition overall. And this is where things get a little bit dodgy again, like a three ounce piece of steak has like 21, 25 grams of protein and it has iron and it has zinc and it has a little bit of a long chain omega three fats. And it's about 200, what is it? 230 calories right around there to get the same absolute amount of protein from beans and rice. You would need to eat nearly 800 calories. So what we find is that folks really struggle to hit that protein minimum. 
And whether folks are high carb or low carb, if they under eat protein, they tend to overeat whatever other macronutrients that they have at hand. With, with just kind of ironic consistency, whenever we see folks that are struggling with their health, particularly with their body composition, the answer is just about uniformly to increase protein. And in a vegan context, we could do that with plant protein isolates and, and stuff like that. But then if we, if we leave it there, then I'm okay with it. But if we start saying that that is now a sustainable way to eat and we're ignoring all the energy in infrastructure that goes into not just the row crops that folks are eating, but also the massive amount of processing to extract this protein to get a concentrated vegan source of protein, then we have some problems there. Like it, it is inaccurate and kind of unethical to couch that stuff as being a, a sustainability boon. If someone just ethically really does not want to eat protein from animal products, but they want to eat as close to what their physiology likely needs, then by all means, go for it, do that stuff. But I'm, I get pretty prickly when folks try to portray, say, like a vegan protein concentrates as somehow superior to meat. When you look at the total environmental footprint, uh, pasture-raised beef or lamb, goats, camels, they, they just beat the pants off of any type of row crop-based and then industrially processed protein supplement. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference, May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and dry farm wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Hi friends. 
So I'm sort of haunted by clothes. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably know that I love wearing all the new clothes all the time. And I know that that is not really sustainable and not good for the planet. That's why I am thrilled that there is now a way to get all of the clothes with none of the waste. And I'm going to tell you how you can get unlimited clothes with no waste for a month for free. That's right, I now have a website for both myself and you guys where you can get free unlimited clothes with free shipping, free exchanges, nonstop from all of the hottest brands, and it is so incredibly easy. It's called MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. We have so many incredible brands, including my favorites like BCBG, Calvin Klein, and so many more. Think like 100 brands. There are so many options. And the way it works is when you get a subscription, you search through the clothes, pick what you want. They send it to you with fast, easy shipping. You wear it as long as you want. And then when you're ready for more clothes, you just drop it off in their prepackaged envelope and get your next round. It is so incredibly cool. They have multiple plans. The starter plan gives you two pieces at a time. Friends, I actually have a little secret hacked. Don't tell them that I told you this. When you get your two pieces, you can actually immediately go into your account, click return, and they'll go ahead and send you the next two pieces. So technically you can have four pieces at a time. You also have a cool virtual closet that you can keep stocked with everything you eventually want to order so you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I'm obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes all the time with none of the waste. Oh, and of course, one of my major reservations was the cleaning compounds that they use on the clothes because yes, it is dry cleaning, which normally makes me nervous. And they don't say this on the website. So I reached out to them and I was like, hey, what's going on with the cleaning? What do you guys use? Because I can't promote this if it's just normal dry cleaning. And thankfully, they let me know that they do not use any detergents, fabric softeners, or chemicals that are harsh. Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com to sign up. Free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right. Unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com for all of the clothes, none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. Yeah, I think the protein is so huge. I mean, I know for me personally... I try occasionally to go low protein, not extendedly, but it's complicated because we have all these studies about low protein and longevity. I mean, you touched on mTOR, for example. mTOR is growth supporting. It's stimulated when we eat protein. On the flip side, we have AMPK, which on the flip side is linked to longevity because it forces the body to go in and basically clean up house and create energy endogenously from itself. And so there's often this argument that high protein diets create a lot of mTOR. So you're constantly in a growth state and an aging state. That's why I find pairing high protein diets with intermittent fasting, I think you get the best of both worlds in a way because you're not having mTOR stimulation during the day, but you're having it, you know, while you're eating. And we do know that there's a 
a cap to mTOR. So, you know, if you eat a high protein meal, you're stimulating mTOR, but it's not like if you keep adding protein that it's not like mTOR keeps being stimulated, you know, extensively more, if that makes sense. If folks are are interested in that longevity piece, I did my talk this year was called Longevity, Are We Trying Too Hard? And I really, it's a super deep dive into this, this topic. And I really make the case that once you are lean and relatively healthy and eating something that sniffs like an ancestral diet, I'm not entirely sure that there's any benefit or, or any significant benefit to like extended periods of fasting. I'm really a big fan of time-restricted feeding and putting more calories earlier in the day and kind of wrapping up shop. But I'm very dubious that there's in my opinion, what's happening in this story is overfed lab animals are being extrapolated to the whole rest of the world. And in a, a type 2 diabetic over hyper caloried, you know, individual, yeah, mTOR is on all the time. But if you eat two or three meals a day and you do some exercise and you, you, you know, you spread those meals out a little bit, I think one thing that we will absolutely do is help foster adequate muscle mass. And this is kind of an interesting thing. Like it is a theory that doing all this kind of jiggy stuff with with protein and fasting will mitigate our, our risk of cancer, cardiovascular disease, neurodegenerative disease, et cetera. Like all of that is entirely speculative, but it is a guarantee every single one of us will experience sarcopenia and loss of muscle mass and loss of large type 2A motor fibers as we age. And, and a primary hallmark of aging is the loss of those, those fast twitch motor units. And so I kind of make the case that if you do everything you can to maintain adequate muscle mass and more specifically power production, you're, you're pushing back this guaranteed problem, which is sarcopenia. And then by extension, what's interesting, when you look at the likelihood of cancer, of neurodegenerative disease, of cardiovascular disease, all of those things are dramatically mitigated by going through the motions of maintaining a lean, active, you know, phenotype, basically. So I, I'm very much in that contrarian side of, of this. I do think intermittency is outstanding, but I think that this is a, a thing, again, where people have kind of gone bananas in protein avoidance, I, ironically. On that banana topic, it's kind of funny, both in the, the vegan and the, the low-protein keto side, there are folks that will recommend 40 grams a day max for, for protein intake for, for males. People have probably heard of the, the 30 bananas a day guy if you eat 30 bananas, you get about 40 grams of protein. Now, it's not complete protein and, you know, there's other other challenges with it. But I, I think that that alone just casts like such a, a dubious light over the, the notion that we should be restricting protein to that level. Intermittently, occasionally, sure, that's great. But I, I, I think folks are going a little little overboard on it. And, and man, once you lose those large fast twitch motor units, they're gone. You never get them back. There's no way to get them back. But there, you can about double or triple your your effective lifespan of of what you can maintain on those. Like a 90 year old who strength trains can be as fit as a 50 year old who doesn't, and and so that can that can play out to a really remarkable change in the the health span of an individual. And I'm I'm pretty dubious about what we can do to really legitimately improve the total longevity at this point. But I know that's kind of out in, out in the weeds. 
one of the most popular episodes I probably had on the show was with Ted Neiman and it was all about protein. And like, I've always been on the protein train. Like I just know I thrive on protein. It just feels so nourishing. Like I, I don't feel strong or complete without it, but people who don't really have that perspective when they're exposed to this idea of the power of protein, I think it's a huge like epiphany moment. And especially what you were saying about like getting protein from plants versus animals. When you get it from animals, you're automatically getting all of this other nutrition with it. So, so important. So question to that, you just tapped on something, which was a huge takeaway that I took away from Sacred Cow. And that was the privilege aspect. And it's fascinating because I think there's often this intense emotional ethical conversation surrounding plant-based particularly like vegan approaches that that is the most ethical thing and we'll go into the details about you know is a plant-based vegan society actually supporting the health of the environment and things like that but there's this idea that that's what you should be doing morally and everybody should be doing it but how is that a very privileged mindset. That was a big thing that stuck with me from your book. Clearly, it's a very hot topic right now, and, and rightfully so. But in a, a, I don't want to diminish a lot of the good intent behind this, but there's also a saying that the path to hell is paved on good intentions. And I think that this is a, exactly a, a case where that bears itself out. So some of the stuff that we we dug up in the course of researching the book, there are tens of millions of women around the world, particularly in in different locations in Africa, that they are not legally allowed to own land. It's just within their culture, within their legal system, they cannot own land, but they can own livestock. And that is the singular source of income, of, of social prestige. It is the nutritional source for their family. And what is happening is that largely white western vegan centric folks in Europe, the United States, World Health Organization, UN are suggesting that these folks traditional lifeways that have supported them for hundreds or thousands of years and are literally the only means of of support that they have Huge tracts of the earth are not amenable to growing row crops. There's actually not that much land that is croppable. There is enormous amounts of land that are grazable. And there are some places we should do, like in the, in the United States, we should do far more sheep, goats, and even camels than we do cattle. Like a, a pre-Clovis time, there was a much broader diversity of, of grazing animals. And you could even make the case that we should be doing bison versus versus more Asian-derived cattle breeds because they're much better adapted to this environment. They require less water and they, they actually fit into the environment better, but that's kind of a, a peripheral thing. But people are suggesting that these, these folks in developing countries abandon their traditional food systems, and this would make them wholly dependent on the agricultural outputs of the United States and Europe as, as kind of a you know, a primary source. And it's interesting that the there was an, an FAO report that came out of the United Nations uh, recently suggesting that everybody needs to, you know, shift towards a more vegan-centric diet. And there was a significant amount of pushback out of the developing world because, one, it would destroy their, their traditional food systems, and two, it would make them 
wholly dependent on the agricultural outputs of places like the United States and Canada. They would have no food sovereignty at all. And, and then more closer to home, like we see some examples of where a far northern group of people within the kind of Inuit population, there was a food pyramid developed for these folks. And on the base of the food pyramid, it was cereal and grains and fruit juices and bananas. And, and it, it kind of went up from there. But at the very top, seal and elk and salmon and blueberries and the things that actually occurred in their environment were at the very top that they should eat hardly any of and sparingly. And it is so appalling because what, what we're doing in situations like this is we are basically saying that this globalized food system is superior to what people can do at the local level to support themselves and support their communities. And, you know, one, one final example of this would be kind of inner city poor uh, within New York, the New York school system, 70% of the, the kids that go to go through the New York school system are low income. 10% of them are, are technically homeless. And for many of these kids, the single meal that they oftentimes get any given day is at school. And so they've been launching these programs like Meatless Mondays and, and folks will say, well, what, what's the big deal with, you know, having people eat a salad one day a week? Well, again, when you look at cognitive development, when you look at physical development, the ability to fight off infectious disease, it is disproportionately weighted in favor of people who eat more animal products. So you're taking folks that are already in a stressed situation because of food insecurity, income insecurity, maybe a, a, any type of like racial problems. And then we're adding on to that, that these well-meaning people, and I hope that they're well-meaning because if they're not, then they're absolute bastards. But I'll, I'll at least give them the, the benefit of the doubt that they're well-meaning. But suggesting that the one paltry meal that they may be getting out of the, the current school system that any and all animal products should be removed from that. And what is left? It's just refined grain products. And again, when we look at what the nutrient deficiencies are that typify developing nations, poor, poor families, it's inadequate protein, inadequate B vitamins, a, an overabundance of refined carbohydrates, zinc, iron, and these things, again, they lead into developmental deficiencies that are permanent. They are never, ever fixed. They are unfixable after, after we do that. So I try not to get on too much of a high horse, but it, it, is, it is something that I, I legitimately get mad about. And, and then there's, again, I don't want to spin out too much on this, but then people will say, well, if you're, if you're Maasai or Inuit, then you can keep eating animal products, but nobody else can. And then it kind of begs this question, well, why can they eat it and nobody else can? You know, so, so if you're a white eighth generation rancher in Montana, you don't cut the mustard with like it, it becomes remarkably racist and classist. And it, it, it's just a, a whole hodgepodge of really jaw dropping stuff. And again, I get that people have some powerful ethical considerations here. And also, and I'm, I'm sure we'll get into this a, a bit later, but there's some perceptions that animal husbandry is disproportionately damaging to the environment and, and whatnot. And this is why we wrote the book, because when we really got in and started digging around this stuff, like, it, in fact, dealing with climate change, food insecurity, 
the the coming change that artificial intelligence will introduce into the human work environment. The irony is that so many of these problems, the best and in sometimes singular solution is a decentralized, small regenerative ag system where there are millions of people around the world producing our food instead of nine companies that control 95% of the food produced on the planet. It's such an upsetting situation because I feel like a lot of the sides, I say both sides, you know, the anti-animal, pro-vegan, I feel like most people are honestly, you know, wanting what's best. Like they think that, you know, removing animal agriculture and doing a plant-based society is what's best for the environment. They think this might be best for health. You know, they think animal products are, you know, linked to cancer and heart disease. And, and you know, I feel like a lot of people think that, you know, they're trying to do what's best. Like you use the example unintended consequences in the book and you, you talked about, I don't remember the exact details, but it was something about like something that happened in Rwanda and then something like a company in in Atlanta sent, do you know what I'm talking about? They sent like eggs to Rwanda. I believe it was actually to Haiti. So there's another film that's really fascinating. It's called Poverty Inc. A hurricane hit Haiti and it got absolutely crushed and people wanted to do something to help the folks there. So we sent a bunch of food, we sent a bunch of clothes and that seems great on the surface. But again, this is the unintended consequences. This is the thing that, that you know, we, we don't always kind of appreciate can occur. When folks sent, there, there were millions of eggs. There was a church that organized a bunch of, of fundraising and they sent a bu- bunch of eggs to Haiti. And what it did is it put the local egg producers out of business. Like it, it just crippled them because people could get free eggs. So why were they going to buy the local eggs? That was okay until the aid disappeared. And then the infrastructure for growing their own chickens and eggs was gone. And a similar thing happened with all the the clothing that was given, particularly shoes. Like apparently the cobbler industry or or as a profession was pretty, pretty important within Haiti. And when they were just deluged with all these, these, you know, used free shoes, then these cobblers went out of, not only went out of business, but were unemployable. I don't know if this story made it into the book, but there's a, a story about the in, in India as India was developing and, and continues to develop. But th- this happened about 20 years ago. India is still a pretty wild place. And one of the wild critters that populates the, the country is the cobra. And they're very dangerous. There's a lot of them. And the government in an effort, you know, basically a public health initiative put out a reward for, I forget if it was the head or the skin of a cobra or life. I I forget exactly what the details were, but show up at a governmental facility, have your cobra or cobras, and you got some some money for it. And people jumped into that. They respond favorably to incentives. And what people realized is that cobras breed like crazy. And so what they did is started raising cobras and then selling the government these raised cobras, which wasn't really the, you know, the intent. The intent was to reduce the number of cobras at large within the environment. So then the government ended the cash for cobras program. And then all of these cobra breeders just dumped the cobras out into the streets. And then the problem was like tenfold worse. And there are so many examples, again, of this like good intention going horribly wrong. 
And it, this is something, again, that when people throw out this notion that we just need to do away with animal husbandry and then the planet will be saved, it, it sounds awesome. It just may not be true. And if you really are concerned about things like, you know, inequality and the future of the human race and the future of the planet, it kind of behooves you to at least do what, what you would do in a high school debate class. Try arguing the topic from the opposite side, just as an experiment. Do a little bit of research on the topic from the opposite side. If nothing else, if, if like what Diana and I are suggesting in the book is, is inaccurate, the exercise of going through that will make folks much more effective at, at dismantling what we're saying. But if people are wrong in the assumption that Planet of the Vegans is the only path towards sustainability, then it's really important to get that right and to understand it sooner as opposed to later. Yeah, 100%. That's why on this show in particular, like I love seeking out every different viewpoint of things. And when I think I have an idea about something, I want to read the opposing viewpoint in detail because I want to know why I might be wrong. Just reading like my own perspective doesn't seem to, to really help. And that Cobra story, it wasn't in the book, but I heard you say it recently on a show and that blew my mind. I was like, that is like just a brilliant example of unintended consequences. And it's hard though, because it's like in any given situation, where do you draw the line? Like you may think you're doing something that's helpful, but then it's not. And so where is the responsibility? Like where does that come into play? And I think that's why a lot of people, especially in the plant-based world, will say, well, you talk about this in the book, the amount of actual deaths caused by a system inclusive of animals, a regenerative type system, compared to a plant-based system. And actually, there's way more actual life loss of death when you consider habitats, insects, rodents, rats, things like that. There's actually much more death on that side of things. I didn't mean to laugh, but there is. You know, we can be presented with these facts, but then in our day-to-day -day life, I think people often say as well, I'm not causing that harm. You know, if I eat plants, I didn't kill anything. What do you say to people who use that argument? Before we head into that, I, I, I want to share one, one thing. Joel Salatin, great, great guy, pretty well known in the regenerative ag scene. He was giving a talk and there were some folks there that were vegan and they were like, well, you know, you make a compelling case, but we just personally don't want to eat meat. What, what, what's going to happen in that case? And Joel said, if you let me feed my family the way that I want to feed them, then I guarantee you, I promise you, I will make enough food so you can feed your family the way that you want to feed them. And that is a remarkably different posture than what is being presented from the folks that are, are advocating this kind of vegan-centric worldview. They're largely putting forward that you're a bad person, amoral, horrible, and they want to legislate the right away to, to own animals, to raise animals. And, you know, nobody's advocating for, like, horrific animal husbandry and environments. We're, we're advocating for exactly the opposite. Like, it doesn't have to slide into some kind of, kind of you know, silly kind of place with that. Like, we can both improve the, the lives of these animals and ultimately eat them. Like, that, that is a, a really ironic thing for a lot of people that's tough to wrap their head around. 
And I, I think the best response that I have on that, that idea that, well, I'm not directly causing the, the death of something. This is kind of part and parcel with a major problem within Western culture at large. We are terrified of death. We, we can't wrap around our head around the fact that we will die, that everything will die. At some point, the sun will die. The planet will die. <laughs> you know, like everything will at some point. And that's a really terrifying thing for some people. And this is where like meditation practice is really valuable because it's a gut check. It's a gut check to realize that we are part of a cycle that we live, we die. The, the calcium in our bones is the consequence of other stars having died and the, the simpler elements getting fused into more complex elements in the heart of a star. So there's just this very almost kind of Hindu or spiritual giant time span look at the cycle of life. And we are wholly divorced from that. And I think that people have this terror of death and they want to mitigate death at every turn. And again, this isn't saying that we should be terrible to people or terrible to animals. But the irony, again, this has been done in scientific published papers looking at the amount of death that occurs in a regenerative agriculture system that is focused primarily on grass and large grazing animals. And what that ends up doing is actually creating more habitat. It increases species diversification. Like the Audubon Society has historically been very prickly towards grazing animals, but what they've been finding is in regeneratively managed pasture land, the local bird populations are exploding because the habitat is getting restored. Whereas in any row crop centric model, the only thing you can do is eradicate the life that's trying to eat, you know, those those row crops. And that goes from the insects to the to the invertebrates to the snakes and the small mammals. Like, is a, a mouse's life equal the same amount as a cow's life? They're both mammals. They they have similar lifespans in, in some cases. Some people will say that a cow is more valuable because it's bigger. That seems sizest, <laughs> you know, it's just kind of, it, it, it's silly. And this is where some of this kind of social justice warrior stuff, some of it is so silly that it becomes remarkably self-contradictory at, at, at just kind of the drop of a hat. But just kind of a reality that life is, is kind of tough in some ways. Like it is a gut check to realize that for me to live, something is going to die, whether it's plants or animals. And at some point, I'm going to die. And I'm going to end up back in that cycle. So I think, you know, my initial thought was that this, this person saying, well, I don't want to directly cause that death. I was going to say it was cowardly. And that, that's too harsh of a term. But I think that it's, it is so ill-informed as to what reality is and what life is that it's on par with like flat earth and, and that lizard people run Facebook or something like it is really divorced from reality. And I get it. It is a harsh reality. But that is also part of, of recognizing that harshness is part of what can cultivate real empathy and, and compassion. Empathy and compassion isn't, isn't if you agree with me, then we're all cool. And if you disagree with me, I'm going to try to grind you under my boot, which is a lot of what's happening in society right now. Real empathy and compassion is looking at someone that you may not even really agree with, but seeing as much of much similarity and as much humanity there as you possibly can. And it's interesting, like the people that I encounter 
that really grok that, that really get that we are all part of this cycle and we are here for a very limited time engagement, they just add as a default mode seem to be such kinder, gentler people. Whereas the folks that are in this really militant, no animals can be killed under any circumstances. It's ironic. They're they're incredibly unempathetic, unkind people for the most part. Like these are the only people in my life that I've ever received death threats from. These are the only people I've ever encountered that have threatened my children because they're so enamored with the the ideology that they're espousing. And again, like I'm not the type of person that will go change anybody's mind at gunpoint, but it it, it gets to be a lot when I I face that from the opposite side. Yeah, I love the empathy equation. Actually, the episode that released, I think this week or last Friday was with Dr. David Perlmutter, and we talked deep about empathy. And I take it one step further, though, and this was the question that I I don't know the answer to. And it's so empathy would be seeing something from somebody else's viewpoints. So in order for me to have empathy, wouldn't I have to have empathy for viewpoints that aren't empathetic? Because to those people, that's their viewpoint. It's very true. It's very true. And I, I think that that's, a, again, this is kind of that high school debate class thing, which I, I is remarkable that we just don't do stuff like that. Like it's such a, an amazing critical thinking skill. At a minimum, in thinking that through, thinking about someone who, okay, what would life be like if you're an unempathetic person? It's going to be kind of miserable. And even though you may not want to partake of a life like that, like you might not want to be friends with that person, you might not want to marry them, but you can at least in the back of your mind or somewhere in your soul be like, oh, I I feel bad for that person because they're probably suffering because of this worldview. And you you can do that, but then also protect yourself from the negativity of that worldview at the same time, the two aren't mutually exclusive. And I don't want to sound like I'm on some sort of like moral high horse, but I'm just kind of stunned by the seeming inability for people to hold either either two ideas in their mind at the same time to say nothing of potentially conflicting or somewhat antagonistic ideas and kind of play them back and forth and, and see that the world isn't just this, this black and white deal, that there's a lot of, lot of gray to it oftentimes. One of the most haunting studies I ever read, and you might be familiar with it, but it's the work they've done in split brain patients. There's been so many experiments where they'll have patients with split brains where the different hemispheres of their brain aren't communicating correctly. And because I forget the details exactly, but because, you know, part of our brain controls what we say and part of our brain controls what we see and part of our brain you know, controls different things, they will have these patients where their brains aren't connected and they'll show them pictures of things that one part of their brain doesn't know that they saw. And then they'll, you know, ask them why they did certain things. They'll make up stories for why they did things that they don't actually have a reason that they weren't aware that they did. And it made me realize that we literally know nothing. If people's brains can come up with fake memories and they can honestly remember doing things that never happened, I was like, I know nothing. It makes reality very malleable which is, again, kind of a scary thing, you know, and it, yeah. But to that point, actually, I was recently watching The Lion King, which is my all-time favorite Disney film, and there's a quote in there. I was like, man, I was like, basically, every child needs to watch Lion King, and then when they're older, they need to read Sacred Cow, and then we'll be good. But even in that film, like, 
Simba asks Mufasa, he's confused about the antelope or something. I, I don't know, because they eat the antelope and, you know, what's going on there. And Mufasa is basically like, I actually pulled out the quote because it's just so simple, but it just summarizes all of it. He says, like, when we die, our bodies become the grass and the antelope eat the grass. And so we are all connected in the great circle of life. And that's just such a simple idea, but I think it's it's so profound. And you talked in the book, Sacred Cow, your co-author Diana told the story and it really stuck with me about her daughter, Phoebe. It's really powerful. You know, they have a operating farm, regenerative farm in Carlisle, Massachusetts. And they went out one day and one of the sheep had been killed by a coyote and partially eaten. And Phoebe was really upset. I mean, they, they love these animals. They take good care of them and everything. And Diana just said, you know, you see all these plants growing and uh, the, those plants need blood, like where the, where that sheep bled and where the parts are, like with, they just ended up burying it and kind of composting it. They're like, that's going to produce amazing food next year for the sheep, <laughs> you know, the, like the grass there and everything. And so Phoebe was kind of noodling on that. And she, she said, oh, it's impossible to really be vegan because all life feeds on life. And this was like a 10-year-old girl, you know, but you unencumber the mind with, with the way that things should be or, or, you know, these kind of preconceived notions and just kind of give it reality. And, and we arrive at some really fascinating conclusions. And again, this doesn't mean that, you know, everything that happens in industrial animal husbandry is good or should be advocated for, or should be supported. It, 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 you know, we can move towards a much more humane and sustainable food system, particularly on, on the animal husbandry side. But thinking that we can just grow food in a vat, or, or you know, that, that we can just do row crops forever, that is entirely dependent on synthetic chemical fertilizer inputs, and that is destroying our topsoil. And that's not an opinion. That's a well-understood fact. And this is one of the things that really has the big food producers scratching their heads. Like Merck Pharmaceuticals had Diana go to Thailand to give a talk to some pig farmers there because Merck recognizes that we have about 15 or 20 years before all antibiotics will be worthless for both humans and animals. But 85% of the antibiotics used are for animals. It's just a, it's a dead-end street, and people don't, don't appreciate that pre-antibiotic era, like very simple infections that we experience now were fatal. Like it, it, it's just kind of crazy, the implications of what could happen if we, if we don't get ahead of that. But these big food producers see an expiration date on what they're doing. They know that the synthetic chemical fertilizer process basically makes all of the action occur right at the surface. And so you don't get the deep roots within the, the grass systems. You don't get the, the fungi interacting with bacteria and water capture and sequestering carbon under the soil. You just get topsoil that blows away or washes away every year. And once that topsoil is gone, it is eons to rebuild it. It's very slow and difficult to rebuild that stuff. And so when you, when you start looking at the, the notion that a regenerative food system that includes animals may be the only thing that we could use that could still be here a thousand years from now, then it starts changing the ethics discussion. Like, 
Is it ethical to do anything but that if that's the case? Is it ethical to do anything but a meat-inclusive food system if it's difficult bordering on impossible to feed human beings, particularly children or people at risk or low income, to get them adequate nutrition any other way than a meat-inclusive diet? I guess the solution is we just need to be breathitarians. Well, I don't know if that's a joke, but now I'm thinking about the implications of that, actually. That's a whole dialogue. Those folks are fascinating to me because there are people that really believe that if you were just spiritually pure enough, you can, you can live like a plant and just take in sunlight and air. And the thing that's appalling to me about that is think about all of the famines, all of the hundreds of millions of people that have died in famine. And they died, according to these people, then their thesis is that they died because they weren't spiritually pure enough. Or these people are completely divorced from the reality of life and death and, and, and simple things like biology and thermodynamics, energy inputs and outputs. Like, I, I don't like reducing things to like, uh, you know, an either or, but that's kind of an either or thing. Like these, these folks that really push this hyper spiritual breathitarian leaning type deal, they're basically suggesting that anyone that's ever died in a famine, they were just spiritually unpure. To that point, I wonder what they would say about, I mean, you, you mentioned like fungi, for example. I mean, we know there are carnivorous mushrooms. And then before this conversation, I was actually contemplating the Venus flytrap. I was like, so is a Venus flytrap being immoral and eating a fly? And folks will make the case, they're like, well, we have a choice. And in a way, we kind of do. But in a way, we kind of don't. Again, like when you look at the nutrient deficiencies that are rampant within folks that eschew animal products, it's a big problem. There was the Eat Land Set piece, which has been really, really soundly criticized, but it basically advocated for eating the equivalent of a blueberry-sized portion of red meat per day, and that was kind of the maximum. A blueberry. Literally a blueberry size? Literally a blueberry size. Yeah, it was, it was absolutely ridiculous. And the people that pushed back on that, and this came out of kind of orthodox scientific community, but the folks that pushed back, they said, one, if we completely remove animal products out of the food system, we're only going to reduce in the U.S. the greenhouse gas footprint by about 2.8%. So it's, it's practically a rounding error. Like it, and, and even there, when we're talking about greenhouse gas emissions from living systems versus fossil fuel, it's entirely different. Again, life produces, you and I are greenhouse gas emitters. We exhale carbon dioxide, but that's part of a carbon cycle. Methane that's released from herbivores, from termites, from shellfish, from rice paddies. That's all part of a biogenic system, but yet we vilify all greenhouse gases the same. And this is, again, where we, we end up in some really, you know, big problems with being too simplistic about stuff. But if we think about the way that these food systems go together and we, we ask that kind of moralistic story, you know, if we can't really feed ourselves adequately without animal inputs, if we must have animal inputs, so two-thirds of the world's landmass are grasslands. They are amenable for nothing other than growing grass. And without herbivores on them in a, a biodynamic fashion, these grasslands die. So we must have animals on them one way or the other. And if we have animals on them, we either need to reintroduce 
large amounts of, of big predators to keep their, their numbers under control, or we need to use them as food. And, and that, like, it, it, <laughs> there, there's just no, no two ways around it. I, I really wish that there was. When we sat down to write this book, we, we line-itemed a ton of, you, you know, basically all of the, the bullet points that we wanted to put in the book. And then we actually sat down and tried to disprove assumptions in there. And there were a couple of things that we, we started off assuming that we ended up completely abandoning ship. But on these, these topics of, is it moral to eat animals? You could make the case that it's immoral not to, because you're not actually contributing to a properly balanced ecology and, 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 you know, biodynamic process. If somebody individually doesn't want to do that, then that's fine. But trying to enact international level policy, which is vilifying animal husbandry, particularly when we, we see examples of being able to reverse desertification, like Diana in the Sacred Cow film interviews a rancher down in the Chihuahuan Desert where they've recovered a million acres of desert and turned it back into grassland. And the people who have lived in this area didn't even know that it could grow grass. And, and now there's this, this area where the grass is like eyebrow high and the roots go down like 20 feet. It holds so much water. It's, it's sequestering carbon out of the atmosphere. And so when you start understanding that whole system, then it, again, you've got to ask the ethical question, like, how could I not support a meat inclusive grass centric food system? Yeah. For listeners, you have to read Sacred Cow. Everything you just said, Rob, I learned so much because up, up until reading Sacred Cow, I feel like it was all just kind of like hot keywords that I sort of had an idea about, but not really. So it was like methane, carbon, regenerative agriculture, carbon sequestering, like monocropping, and kind of like this idea of, oh, that's good or that's bad. But reading the book, I finally got an understanding of what's actually happening. You know, you talk about how, you know, the difference in carbon that is already naturally present in the environment compared to releasing carbon from fossil fuels, which is releasing new carbon into the environment. Actually, right before this, I was listening to an episode with, so I often listen to Rich Roll's podcast because, you know, he's, he's very vegan, but I, I think he's a really great interviewer and it exposes me to a lot of different perspectives. His most recent episode was actually with, I don't know, are you familiar with Margaret Klein Salomon? I know the name. Yeah. I was listening to it because I was curious because it said the topic was climate change. And I was like, oh, yes, like ritual. I'm going to hear, you know, the opposite side viewpoint. But they actually didn't go into really the, the animal side of things at all as much as like fossil fuels and like how we've been completely lied to about the impact that's having on the environment. Also relate to this. One thing that you talk about in Sacred Cow, you you have this idea of grass world. It was a really good picture of what happens when a whole system is not holistic and inclusive and has everything required to be sustainable. Could you talk briefly a little bit about that? Like why a system does require animals and does require all of these factors to be sustainable? One of the challenges that we've faced all the way along in this, this journey, it's kind of asymmetric warfare, what we're dealing with. So the, the folks that are on the more vegan-centric side of the story it's kind of like they're able to take a hand grenade and just throw it over the fence and run. And we have to then deal with it. It's like meat causes cancer and they lob it over the fence. Meat causes heart disease. Meat destroys is going to destroy the planet. That really is how it goes, I feel. Sorry, I'm just laughing. It was like they just said with the topic keywords, like you just throw out, you're like, 
climate change, global warming, methane, done. The science is settled. To unpack this, it's literally kind of a mini PhD dissertation in ecology, thermodynamics, economics, you know, and it's hard to make any of that stuff interesting for people that, that aren't specifically into that. It's doubly hard to catch people's attention. And we were at a conference where somebody was doing a great discussion of just ecology. And I looked at Diana and I was like, this is what we need to cover. Like people just don't understand like the basics of ecology and what, you, you know, the, the way that life functions. And so I, I cooked up this idea of grass world and it's this idea that it, it threw some weird circumstance. We end up with a second planet in our solar system it, it identical to Earth in every way, except there's no life on it. And it's it's easily accessible to us. And we decide that we want to to start populating it with some life. And people have the, the good idea of starting off with grass. And so they send a probe over and they they drop grass seeds on the on the ground and it rains and it snows and it does its thing and the grass grows and then it dies. As the scientists scratch their head, they're like, oh, there's there's no nitrogen. We ran out of nitrogen. We need some nitrogen-fixing bacteria. We need some soil microbiome interaction. Do we send like billions of tons of manure over there, or do we send something that can make billions of tons of manure? So we send cows. So we populate the land with grass, let it grow. We put cows on. It lasts a little bit longer, but the population of the cows outstrips the carrying capacity of the grass and the whole system collapses again. So now we're thinking about it. And we're like, OK, we need something to control the population of the cows. And so it's grass, then cows and then wolves. And in this situation, we have a system, a very rudimentary system that can kind of go on more or less indefinitely. I don't know if they still make these things, but there used to be these enclosed glass orbs that had like fairy shrimp and snails and kelp. And so long as you had light that's shown in there, the, the kelp would grow and then the fairy shrimp would eat the kelp and then the snails would eat the fairy shrimp and everything would die and recycle. And these things could last for years. But these, these little ecosystems are incredibly brittle. They are not resilient. You know, back to our example of grass world, if one bacteria or one virus changed and it killed the grass, the cows, or the wolves, the whole system fails. And so what you then want is lots of different types of grasses, lots of different types of herbivores. And you don't just want an apex carnivore. You want lots of arm omnivores and, and smaller niche organisms that, you know, like voles and mice. You want as much ecological diversity as you can possibly get. And the irony is that the vegan-centric row crop model of food systems, which is what the world default is today, looks remarkably similar to that incredibly precarious grass world situation. It can kind of go on for a while, but we're going to lose our topsoil at some point. And then that's all going to, that's all, all going to come to an end. But the interesting thing is that moving towards this regenerative system increases biodiversity it increases the number of options that we have and this is still really in its infancy like most of the herds of animals that are being used in the united states it should be a mixture of goats and bison and 
camels and a bunch of different animals. And, you know, part of that is going to require some cultural adjustments, like some, some groups like different folks from Africa and different folks out of Latin America really like goat. I like goat a lot too, but that's because I've had a lot of folks that are friends from Latin America and I kind of, you know, developed a taste for it. But if even under the current models that we're using, it could work so much better if we used more biodiversity versus less. It, it shouldn't just be cows. The reason why we focus so much on cows, though, is that they've kind of disproportionately taken a, a bad rap in this whole story. But it, it's cool. I'm, I'm stoked that you mentioned that grass world story like that. That's been maybe the greatest point of feedback that we've had about the book is that pe people are like, this really, really makes sense. And in the film, I think we have a very nice animated portrayal of that whole whole process to help people kind of wrap their heads around it. Hi, friends. Okay, so I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near-infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near-infrared for so long. And at the same time, during the day, I was using a bright, sad light. So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near-infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? I found the solution and guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, it was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, it's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus, or SCN, in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet. Because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time, that's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love Soulshine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near-infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful 
for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a Juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an ear infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code melanieavalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code melanieavalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. Friends, You guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine, and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits. The longest-lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight. It's what they eat when they drink. But if you want all of the benefits of wine, the type of wine you're drinking is key. Conventional wine in the US is often full of toxins. We're talking things like pesticides, mold, and additives. Dyes, colorizers, artificial flavors. Have you even seen some wine that says vegan? That's because conventional wine isn't even necessarily vegan because of the additives. I am obsessed with a company called Dry Farm Wines. They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices, and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with Dry Farm Wines. One of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try Dry Farm Wines. I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon. All right, now back to the show. Hi, friends. An incredible fasting aid is coffee. Yes, I am all about the coffee. I am a huge fan of its health benefits as well as how it can support your fast and really help with energy and fat burning. And I have a big announcement. The brand of coffee that I have been drinking for an entire decade now, I am no longer drinking. There's some drama, there's some science, and I'm about to tell you how to get a discount on my new favorite coffee. So I've been drinking the coffee formerly known as Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Coffee for literally a decade. I do not drink it now, so this is not a Bulletproof Coffee commercial, but I started drinking it because I so trusted Dave and his obsession in creating mold-free coffee because moldy coffee beans is a huge problem and a lot of people can get health issues, brain fog, and crash after coffee because of the mold contamination. 
contamination. David's been talking about this for so long, so I really trusted him and I would drink Bulletproof coffee, which I absolutely loved and loved that it was mold-free. Then there was some drama. Dave sort of got kicked out of Bulletproof. He might be going back. There's a lot of stuff going on with that. Follow him on Instagram if you want to learn more about that. He even talked about it at the recent biohacking conference. But in any case, <laughs> drama aside, he can no longer speak to Bulletproof coffee as to whether or not it is mold-free. And he ended up making a coffee even better than Bulletproof coffee. And it is called Danger Coffee. And friends, I love it. It's the first coffee that is not only mold-free, but actually can help you remineralize. Yep, that's right. Danger Coffee contains a patent-pending formula that actually remineralizes your body with more than 50 trace minerals, nutrients, and electrolytes. On top of that, it is super clean. I know people like to see organic labels. Friends, I have learned so much about the certification industry. And honestly, the best of the best is finding people that you trust who do extensive testing and third-party certification. That's what I do with my Avalon X supplements. And that's what Dave does with Danger Coffee. So with Danger Coffee, they use a process that far exceeds government and industry standards. And it is third-party lab tested. So you can rest assured it is free of mold toxins. As for the flavor, Dave selected these hand-picked farm direct beans for their quality, their superb flavor, and their elevated performance. I love the taste of it. It's much richer and more nuanced than Bulletproof Coffee. It's honestly one of the best coffees I've ever tasted, and it's so exciting to know that when I'm drinking it, I'm actually helping to remineralize my body. So that's right. If you want your coffee to contain antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, micronutrients, and help optimize your fasting, you want Danger Coffee. And of course, I have a discount for you guys. You can go to melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get 10% off. Again, that is melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee with the coupon code melanieavalon for 10% off. This is my favorite coffee. Like I said, it takes some really good coffee and convincing biohacking health reasons to break me from my 10-year decade bulletproof coffee habit but sometimes you just got to upgrade. And by the way, this would make epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee. You were talking about how it can often be a dry topic. Like it can be hard to understand and it can seem, like I said, dry, but the grass world was like the perfect analogy. And then the book in general just it made it really interesting because my mind just kept being blown like just blown like you, you were talking about how there's often this argument that you know cows require so much feed or land and things like that but then you pointed out that you know when cows are on pasture like 90 percent of what they could eat is stuff that we couldn't eat <laughs> they're turning it into food that we can eat or and you talked about like the different types of water that's another piece to this that, that's really interesting. So people will say, and this is a very common, you know, hand grenade that's lobbed over the fence. It takes way more food to raise animals than if you just directly fed it to people. That misrepresents things on, on two levels. When we're talking specifically about cattle, and, and it's ironic, well, I'll talk about the cattle, but try to remind me to circle back to chickens and, and pork here in a little bit. But Cows, even cows that end up in a, a CAFO feedlot system, they spend 70% of their lives on grass. And so when people are doing the, the numbers 
basically saying that a certain amount of food has been allocated to raising these animals. Some of what they're including in that, a significant portion of what they're including in that is grass, which last I checked, humans cannot eat. And most of the areas where you can grow grass, you can't grow crops. So it is, it, it's not competing with or stealing food away from somewhere else. And then when we get past that, when we look at the actual kind of crop residues that are fed to cows, the bulk of it, nearly 80% of it, is leftovers from the ethanol industry. So, and nobody is going after booze or bioethanol as, as like this, you know, stealing food from people or anything like that. So when you really look at the numbers on that, it, it's ironic because actually what cows represent, they aren't stealing nutrition away from anybody. They're upcycling super low nutritional quality foodstuffs and turning it into a highly nutrient dense food that is perfect for humans to eat. So that actual reality is so far from what is being portrayed that it, this is, again, one of these things where get this wrong and we really might destroy humanity. <laughs> like This is one of these things that is really critical to understand on the water resource piece. It's portrayed that animal products, specifically beef, are much more water intensive than these vegetable products. But again, what's fascinating when you get in and look at the, the water that is allocated in these different stories, we have green water, which is rain, snow and other precipitation that falls on the earth. We have blue water that is in lakes, streams and underground reservoirs. And then we have gray water, which is the effluent or the leftovers from any type of a kind of an industrial process. And 96 to 98% of the water, whether we're talking conventionally raised meat or regenerative meat, comes from green water. It, it comes from the water that just falls on the earth raising grass. But it's portrayed as if we are stealing that water from somewhere else that we could be using it to like grow crops or something like that. And there's no pushback about things like almonds which are grown in these, these mainly in California, these quite arid environments where the almond growers own the rights to the water in a remarkable number of places such that the cities that are there cannot get drinking water. They have to drive in drinking water in trucks, but yet they raise the almonds and 80% of the almonds that are raised in the United States are exported to China. So we're basically exporting our groundwater in our most productive agricultural area, California, and exporting it to China. And this, again, when you think about the carbon footprint and the resource allocation, nobody is up in arms over what's happening with almonds and then the impact of, of like all of the herbicides and pesticides and, and almonds and the impact on bees, as an example. So it, it, this is where it's really important to just get a little bit more nuanced of a picture on this. And again, if people are, are dubious or like, I don't know, I don't know if I buy what this guy says, that's great. Don't buy what I say, but at least get in and look at the numbers on this stuff. Read the primary research and then you tell me where we got this stuff wrong because I will update it in a, a hot minute. I don't want to be wrong. I don't want to have inaccuracies in in any of the stuff that we have. But we were really, we, we worked on this book for four years. It was nearly 600 pages when we turned it in. And I think it published at like 280 pages. So we, we tried to make it both readable, but also 
comprehensive. And, you know, both Diana and I have kids. My kids are a little younger than hers, but we've had some of the criticism that we've we've had out of kind of the the vegan land is we just really don't care about the world. And, and you know, to, to say that to a parent and to to this is, again, that lack of empathy thing where and I've said, you know, I do have kids. Right. And these people will just say, well, you clearly don't care about them. And it's like, OK, well, it, it, maybe or maybe we've both looked at some data and. I, we've drawn different conclusions from that. And maybe we should have a discussion around that. Yeah, this is why your message is just so valuable. And what were you going to say about the chicken and pork? So it's interesting. When you talk about the, the resource allocation that goes into producing meat products, beef, lamb, even lamb actually is almost 100% grass-fed. Like they, even in the United States, it's rarely grain-finished goat. All those things mainly eat grass. When we start talking about chicken and pork, they almost explode exclusively are fed grains and soybean products. And an ironic feature is over the last 30 years, we've dramatically decreased our consumption of red meat from, from beef and dramatically increased mainly chicken, but also pork. And if you wanted to make the case that there, there was a resource misallocation somewhere, it's in chicken and pork. Those things prior to World War II, when we developed the industrial food system, one of the, the sale points of developing the industrial food system was this term, a chicken in every pot, because chicken used to be a really rare treat because chicken is a secondary or tertiary player in an, an ecosystem. Primary players always were large grazing animals that operated on grass. And so it's only been with the intensification available via the industrial food system that you could take these kind of minor, minor players, pork and chicken, and make them primary players. But there's kind of two, two features there to really consider that antibiotic use story. You cannot industrially raise chicken and pork without antibiotics. They, they, they turn into a, a steaming cesspool of disease. They kind of do anyway, but they, they beat that down with massive amounts of, of antibiotics. And then the other piece is that there, there legitimately is resource misallocation. You could make the case of, you know, like grain and soybean products getting, getting fed to animals. But this is, again, where well-meaning but ill-informed people make this a, a really big problem. Leonardo DiCaprio made this film in conjunction with National Geographic Society called Before the Flood. And he goes through the bulk of the film, basically decrying the evils of animal husbandry as part of our food system, focusing mainly on cattle. And at the end of the film, he makes the case that people should shift away from eating beef and eat more chicken. And if we really want to address the climate change topic, if we really want to address the sustainability topic, that is literally 180 degrees away from the direction that we should go. We should be eating less chicken and pork and more beef, lamb, camel, goats, those, those sorts of things. But this is, again, where well-funded, well-meaning people that don't do the diligence to really figure this stuff out are ill-informing millions of people. And then it, it, it's this trench warfare trying to, to undo this stuff. Folks feel like they're in a, a position of being well-informed, and they're really not. Yeah, for listeners who are further interested in the, the, all the chicken craziness, I recently had Anya Fernald on the podcast, and she went deep into the chicken industry, and it was, it was like, oh, dear. It was very shocking. So camel, so eating camel, 
Have you had camel? It's amazing. Really? What does it taste like? It depends a little bit on what it's eating. Is it a red meat? It's a red meat, and and it would be more akin to lamb, but it tends to be a little more marbled. Like they they they're they're fairly ro- robustly marbled, so it, it like a wagyu beef would probably be a a similar most analogous thing. So it's fatty. It tends to be a, a little bit, but but it, like it's marbled. It's in there. It's kind of mixed into it. Yeah. Do you know if it has a like omega three favorable profile? I'm just curious. <laughs> That's like a random question. This is a, a point that we've had a fair amount of angst that has come out of the. I know what you're about to say, and I was about to ask you about it. <laughs> yeah. When we sat down and outlined the book, like I, like I said, we had all these kind of bullet points, and we had one of the bullet points was pastured meat is more nutritious than conventional meat. And we gathered up every bit of literature possible, and we looked at it, and what we found was that pastured meat had slightly more omega-3 fats than conventional meat, and it was effectively indistinguishable in every other way like iron, B vitamins, like there was just virtually no difference at all. Pastured dairy is much more nutritious than conventional dairy. Pastured eggs, far more nutritious. Wild seafood, much more nutritious. But when we looked at at meat, you know, red meat, specifically beef, there just wasn't that much of a difference. And like we tortured and fiddled the information every way because we knew that there was going to be this kind of uprising against us around this. And people will will cite the omega-3 fats in, in red meat. But the thing is, is that a three-ounce piece of salmon has more omega-3s than eight pounds of beef. So although beef is a source of long-chain omega fats, it's not an outstanding source of long-chain omega fats. And at the end of the day, the real wacky takeaway is just that meat is highly nutritious. And that that's kind of... The long and short of it, we even hired an independent PhD food researcher, PhD in biochemistry and nutritional biochemistry, and said, hey, we want you to do a piece comparing and contrasting the nutritional characteristics of grass-fed versus conventional meat. And we didn't give him any of our information, didn't skew him one way or the other, and he arrived at exactly the same spot. And, And we've had people just hopping mad at us about that. And I, I swear, it, it, it would be great, you know, like when you watch one of the, the vegan documentaries, you know, veganism improves your sex life and it makes you more spiritually pure and it, you, you will never die at all. But if you do, it's just going to be a bus accident and it's not going to be cardiovascular disease or nerve. Like it is perfect. There's no, there's no, you know, gotchas in there, but we've got a couple of gotchas. And one of them is just that pastured meat is superior from an ethical standpoint. It's superior from a regenerative standpoint, sustainability standpoint, but you can't make a really credible argument around nutrition. You can make a little bit, you can make a a, a case around the potential of bioaccumulation, things like atrazine and, and even aflatoxin, ironically, when they do feed animals grains or grain products. And if those grains have been contaminated with mold, you can get a remarkable amount of aflatoxin, like enough to injure or, or kill people. But that is a separate topic from just basic nutrition, which is looking at essential amino acids, essential fatty acids, vitamins, and minerals. When we look at it purely from the nutritional standpoint, there's just not that much difference. So the omega-3-6 thing... 
I'm a big fan of the work of Ray Pete. If you're familiar with him, the people on those forums and boards are, you know, very much anti PUFA polyunsaturated fats, actually both <laughs> in general. I've definitely been diving deeper into the omega-6, omega-3. And granted, I think the main issue with omega-6 exposure today isn't meat. It's the seed oils. But what do you think are the implications? Let's say a person is consuming a whole foods diet and either consuming conventional meat for like their life compared to, you know, grass-fed, pastured. Even though the amount of omega-3 is not substantially more, I wonder if the ratio is has implications. Because like the chart in your book, I know it was averages, and that was one thing you point out in the book was that the numbers are like all over the board. <laughs> the average of like pastured was like 14 grams of omega-3 to 67 grams of omega-6 for, I think it was a 100-gram sample. And then like conventional was 20. I think it's probably micrograms per per 100 gram or, or milligram, milligram. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I know I was going to say the wrong thing. Um, <laughs> but so numbers aside, like the ratio was so substantially different. Like seemed like it's around, like in that example, around like 20% of the omegas was omega-3 compared to around like 6%. And I know, do you think there's any implications? Because our cellular membranes tend to reflect the ratio of our diet. So do you think there's any implications there of having a more favorable ratio? Maybe, but I think that this is getting into that area of of really diminishing returns. Diana has a a good analogy, and I'm kind of blanking on the specifics, but the the analogy she uses is if we think about a dollar is made up of potentially a hundred pennies. When we're talking about that omega-3, omega-6 ratio, like pastured meat is one penny, conventional meat is two pennies out of a dollar. And so when you look at the amount of monounsaturated fat, saturated fat, protein, all that stuff, like it is it is just so, yeah, the ratio is typically a little bit different, but it is absolutely tiny amounts, you know? And so if you get into that stuff, then you really cannot use olive oil ever because it's got way more omega-6 fats than, than beef does of, of either variety. You can never have almonds far, far, far more omega-6s, you know, as an absolute amount to say nothing of the ratios The you know, the ratios are much higher, but there's actually a significant amount there. And so that starts getting into kind of squirrely area for me. So, you know, I make the case that there are some people that are very sick, they're very sensitive to foods and pastured meat is kind of the only meat that they, they don't react negatively to. That's a, a category, but it's a very small number of people. Beyond that, my big case for supporting local decentralized regenerative agriculture is is to keep that stuff alive long enough that it can expand and become the default. And so people with the resources to support a system like that should probably do it. And then people that, you know, family of four living at the the margin, I would dramatically prefer seeing them getting Costco beef versus eating more bagels or beans or rice. Like I, I, I think the nutrition, the health, the satiety 
is all going to play out really favorably. And even I, I don't agree with a very much of what what repeat throw, throws out there, but it is interesting that if you you whether you're talking grass fed meat or pastured meat, meat a very meat centric diet plays much closer to his notions around the favorability of say like saturated fat and and that whole story than fish as an example. Something fascinating was between conventional and like pastured that the saturated fat was pretty much the same. It's really the monounsaturated fat where you get the the large increase or not large, but the more fat. Are you familiar with the work of Terry Cochran, Wildatarian? I don't think so. No. She's fascinating. And I had her on the show and her theory, she has the whole theory about amyloid protein formation in conventionally raised agriculture. And Basically, she thinks that when these animals are in these stressed environments, that it actually creates like truncated amyloid proteins in their meat that our bodies can't digest. And she thinks that's actually a root cause of a lot of our health conditions today. So her approach, like I said, it's called wildatarian. I should connect you guys because she's just fascinating. But yeah, she makes an argument that eating conventional meat creates these amyloid type buildups in our body that we can't digest and creates a lot of health conditions. It's fascinating. Super interesting. Yeah. I know we're running out of time. Just a few more last quick questions. Nuclear energy. Was that something that if we were able to do it, like would be a solution? I don't remember if, or it would not. Yeah. I mean, this is and this gets people mad immediately. And you it, it's kind of one of those things if you want to, you know, check the the temperature of a, a, a dinner party or something, you know, you come out on the side for nuclear energy. But I, I forget how we wove it into the book. But I made the case that if you're really concerned about climate change, and you're railing against animal husbandry, but yet not focusing on the, the outputs of the current transportation system, then it, it's really misguided. People will talk about Fukushima and, and Three Mile Island and stuff like that. And the, the main point that I make is, is just the following. If people can't with alacrity describe the difference between a generation one versus a generation four or five nuclear reactor, if they can't talk about the potential around thorium reactors and the difference that that is versus a Gen 1, which is what all of these you know, nuclear accidents have occurred in, you might be operating from a place of <laughs> really inadequate information to really make much of a decision. Like if you don't easily off the top of your head know the, the difference between a Gen 1 versus Gen 4 reactor and what the implications are for, for safety and, and uh, decentralization and whatnot, then there might be a problem there. And, and people will push back on that, like nuclear energy. What's ironic to me is whenever folks avoid something from both the right and the left side of the political aisle, I, it's almost a guarantee that it's you're onto something good. And if you want to see folks push back against something from, from both sides of the aisle, it's nuclear energy. And so it, it, it kind of gets my curiosity up a, a good bit. And uh, another thing that I would, I would throw out there for people to consider, and it kind of blows me away how, how young many of the folks that, are, that are, are listening to podcasts now. But the first cell phone that I had, I, I got it as part of my job in 1996. And this thing was, it, it was about 15 pounds. It had an external battery pack that was like the size of a car battery that you had to hump around with it. 
and it had terrible service. There was not even the thought of texting on it. And now, you know, a little over 20 years later, we have something that it's not even on the same planet with regards to the technological advancements that have occurred here. And my, my point to that is that we have so many examples of shocking technical advancements, except in the ener- energy circles. Like we, we haven't really seen these newer generation nuclear reactors come online because the, there's not really the public will to or, or the political will to push for that. And it, it's just kind of ironic. And I think, it, again, it's one of these things that if people have really strong feelings about it one way or the other, I would just really encourage folks to be able to to get to a conversational tone. Like you could sit down with a nuclear engineer and at least have a passing conversation about like, hey, man, talk to me about what was the difference between a Gen 1 versus Gen 3? And then how is the Gen 4 improved, like the, the water handling and pressure? You should be at that level of conversation in my opinion, to be able to have some sort of an informed opinion about the topic. And ironically, I think once you got to that point, you would actually see nuclear energy as being pretty potentially favorable. Gotcha. Yeah, my context for asking was, I was just thinking hypothetically, if a person wanted an ideal system that didn't create any animal death that was also sustainable and regenerative, would it be like a lab-grown meat situation powered by nuclear energy? Kind of, but it still circles back around to what are we going to do with all that grassland? And so if we if we don't have grazing animals on grassland and even these desertified areas, then that area, it, it will, the grasslands will die and they will desertify. And some, some people, again, will say, well, just put grazing animals there and just let them go. Well, you can't just let them go. They will, they will outstrip the carrying capacity of their grasslands. So then we either need to manage their populations by eating them, or we need to introduce large predators like mountain lions and wolves. And these are like coyotes can be kind of nasty too, but these are big (laughs) apex predators that kill humans, not, you know, in uh, non-trivial numbers when, when the, the population density gets high enough. And, and people living in urban centers may be like, oh, that's fine. I don't really care about that. But, it, you know, if you live in more of a suburban area where you, you are encircled with grasslands that would need grazing animals to maintain them and you would need a, a large active predator population, that may not be as, as appealing as many people, uh, you know, that, that just kind of flippantly uh, put this stuff forward. You, you know, it may not be quite as appealing. So if that did happen, if flip the switch and all of a sudden we're doing lab meat, nuclear energy, and we stopped all farming and everything, it would revert to a, a desert or animal overgrowth or <laughs> an interesting thing with with desertified areas or grasslands in general, you can overgraze them and you can undergraze them. Overgrazing will turn them into desert, undergrazing will turn them into desert. The, there's kind of this this nice balance and I, I don't know if it's a great analogy, but I think about it similar to exercise. We need exercise in order to be healthy. It's a stimulus or, you know, kind of a something that damages us to some degree that then the adaptation, the hormetic stress that occurs is really where the benefit comes from. It's not in doing the thing, it's in recovering from it. And this is very similar to animals that that are properly managed and this is a piece that I didn't really mention but we talk about in the book. Historically, these, these huge herds of grazing animals are very tightly packed. 
They are continually moving and they're tightly packed together because they are picked, picked at from the periphery by, by predators. And when we remove predators, well, it, so it, when, when a large group of animals or grazing animals move through an area in this way, which we can simulate this with electric fencing, keep them packed together, but, but move them very rapidly through an area, they eat everything. Then you move them off that area and the area recovers. It gets fertilized. It gets all kinds of microbes injected into the system. And then weeks or months later, when the animals come back to that spot, the grass has regrown and typically even better than what it was before. And when you remove that predator-prey interaction, we then have to do something like portable electric fencing and, and holistically manage you know, movement of the animals. Otherwise, the animals will overgraze an area. And that, that can be very bad, too. We have lots of examples of that. But there's a balance between doing nothing versus overgrazing. Thank you so much. This conversation has been so valuable. We've been talking about so much. I think just education surrounding the topic is so key. I know a lot of people will want to be like, just tell me what to do. But <laughs> thankfully in your book, I had to laugh. In the beginning of the book, you you basically say, you know, if you want to just be told what to do, you know, flip to this page, but you really just want people to read the whole thing. But I was going to ask where the publisher's like, you got to like... <laughs> have a go-to section. That was largely our, our idea. And a little, little interesting side note to that, Diana had been passed by like every publisher under the sun. And then the folks who published the China study picked up the book. This is Ben Bella Publishing. Mainly what they publish are vegan-based books. And when they read the manuscript, they were just jaw-dropped. They're like, we can't not publish this because we're feeling like we've maybe driven things in a direction that is inaccurate and we need to fix it. So again, for, for the people that maybe push back on like, ah, I don't know, that guy sounded like a kook. The people that published this published the, the China, the original China study. It's huge. So listeners get the book. Like I said, it does have a whole section on how to practically, you know, make choices every single day to, you know, support regenerative agriculture, support sustainability of our environment, of our health, of everything. Last question I ask every single guest on this podcast, and it's just because I've come to realize how important mindset is surrounding everything. So what is something that you're grateful for? Oh man, I'm definitely grateful for my wife and my family. My wife believed in me when I didn't have two nickels to rub together and was just getting started in this whole scene. And I am not the easiest person to live with. And she's been absolutely amazing. And my daughters are just the the joy of my life. So I am infinitely grateful for them. Well, thank you so much, Rob. I'm going to start crying again. I am so grateful for your work. I cannot even express. Actually, when I released my my book, What When Wine, I'll have to send you a copy if I haven't already. I've got it. I'm looking at it right now. Yeah. Oh, you do? Okay. You're in the acknowledgements. <laughs> We've had such a profound impact on my life and you're having such a profound impact on our world. Thank you for everything you're doing. Thank you. Any links you want to put out there for people to follow your work? sacredcow.info is where all the action's happening with that. And it, again, I really do encourage folks, um, whatever side of this kind of discussion that you lie, uh, you know, that you exist in, I just really beg people to do some more diligence, like wherever you are on, on this thing. Like we have 
hundreds and hundreds of citations. And I, I, I'm not necessarily suggesting that you go through like everyone. Certainly, if you want to, by all means, do it. But if there's a, a, a section that you're like, I don't know. I don't know if this really makes sense. Read the primary literature that we cited in there. Get in and, and dig into that. And, and you do some analysis. And if we got something wrong, then, then write us a letter, do a blog post, tag us in it and, and explain how we, we got something wrong. But we've really got to move beyond just kind of, well, it doesn't make sense or I just disagree or whatever. Like it, 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 it is too, it's too important of a topic that if what we're saying is true to be ignored. And it's too important of a topic that if what we are saying is wrong, to let us get away with it being wrong. So it really needs to be vetted out and it needs to be pressure tested. But just simply, again, like throwing these these hand grenades over the fence and then running away and not not doing the diligence of kind of fleshing this out. We need to do better than that. All of us need to do better than that. I cannot agree more. Well, thank you so much, listeners. Get Sacred Cow. I will put links to all of this in the show notes. Get Sacred Cow for yourself. Get it for every other person in your life. Perfect gift for anybody. Thank you so much. I'm so appreciative of your work. And hopefully I can bring you back on in the future. I could talk to you for hours. I milked every second of your time. So thank you. Anytime you want me to bring down property values, I'll do it. Always happy to do it. Thank you so much, Rob. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.